It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast with a hand-picked selection of delectables from the week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and on your menu this week, Japan's ageing drivers refuse to give up their wheels, how your sense of smell affects your politics, and a bell tolls. But for whom? But first, how the West got China wrong was our cover line this week. The Western world bet that China would head towards more openness and the market economy, but the country has just cemented itself into a perpetual authoritarian system. That bet has failed. Our cover leader explained what the West should do now. Last weekend, China stepped from autocracy into dictatorship. That was when Xi Jinping, already the world's most powerful man, let it be known that he will change China's constitution so that he can rule as president for as long as he chooses, and conceivably for life. The move meant that a 25-year-old wager the West was banking on hasn't worked out. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, the West welcomed the next big communist country into the global economic order. Instead, many global leaders were hoping to bind China into their rules-based global order set up after the Second World War. They hoped that economic integration would encourage China to evolve into a market economy and that, as they grew wealthier, its people would come to yearn for democratic freedoms, rights and the rule of law. A worthy vision, but not the reality. China has embraced some Western rules, but it's forming its own parallel system too. Take the Belt and Road Initiative, which promises to invest over $1 trillion in markets abroad, ultimately dwarfing the Marshall Plan. This is partly a scheme to develop China's troubled West, but it also creates a Chinese-funded web of influence that includes pretty much any country willing to sign up. And its resurgent military might is a growing challenge to other great powers. The pace of Chinese military modernization and investment is raising doubts about America's long-run commitment to retain its dominance in the region. So how should the West react in the face of all this? You can read more in this week's issue. But on now to our science section, where there's a whiff of authoritarianism in the air too. A new study sniffing around for the biological causes of political beliefs has revealed that your sense of smell may affect how you cast your ballot. Humans, like other animals, have evolved to notice and avoid sources of infection, whether that be rotten food or sickly members of their own species. This behavioural immune system can have unexpected consequences. Studies have, for instance, shown that those whose noses are more easily offended are also more likely to shun foreigners or disapprove of homosexuals. These effects spawn the idea for new research, seeing if disgust has any link to authoritarian political views. Members of the team have developed a Body Odour Disgust Scale, or BODS. This is based on asking volunteers a series of questions about different scenarios, 
such as noticing that a friend's feet smell. Then they recruited a couple of hundred volunteers to get their bods checked and to answer a survey on their political leanings. Our country needs a powerful leader in order to destroy the radical and immoral currents prevailing in society today, for instance, and with more socially, fiscally or morally conservative views. The researchers found that those scoring highly on the BOD scale did indeed hold more authoritarian views. As it happened, the research took place in the midst of America's presidential election, so they thought they'd check how supporters of the then-candidate Donald Trump felt about bad smells. High BOD's scores were a feature of those intending to vote for Mr Trump, but not the Democratic Party's nominee, Hillary Clinton. This time, however, the association was even weaker, enough to account for only about 1% of voting intention. A small effect then, but an effect nonetheless. The work of Dr Lutzer and his colleagues adds to the persistent evidence suggesting that prejudices and political views can be influenced by a person's desire to avoid disease and bad smells. Whether they got into office by a nose or otherwise, we wanted to find out what yields a good leader once they're in power. In this week's Economist Asks, our guest was a man who's been modestly described as the hottest thinker in the world. I sat down with Nassim Nicholas Taleb, the renowned author and professor of risk engineering at New York University, to find out whether having more at stake personally would make for better leaders. If you want to be an interventionist, then go settle in Iraq if the thing fails. It's morally wrong to be an interventionist while sitting in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., writing, uh, you know, thing that brought government into action without paying the price. How can it be morally wrong to simply take a different view, whether it's... There's, it's, a diff- it's not a view. You're causing harm. It is morally wrong to cause harm without paying the consequences. If you allow harm to occur and then you can sit in your Washington suburb feeling smug, why is that better morally? No, the, the point is, if you use that argument, hey, you know, let's save the world, we're saving the world, that argument is the typical argument used by charlatans. But what has happened is a rotten system where decision makers are not the one who pays for the consequences. And this cannot continue in that shape for long because systems blow up when you don't have accountability. Elsewhere in this week's print issue, we reported on a kerfuffle over accountability in Japan. How old should people be until they must stop driving? Well, this country's government is trying to nudge some of the more senior motorists off the road, but they're not moving over easily. After nearly half a century behind the wheel, Hisa Matsumoto, who is 85, is not ready to stop driving. He and his wife depend on their car to escape the confines of Hakone, the lakeside town where they live. Horror stories of pile-ups involving elderly drivers do not ruffle him. I'm not that old yet, he says. I still have 15 more years to go till I reach 100. Unfortunately, statistics are piling up against aged drivers. Mr Matsumoto is one of more than 5 million drivers in Japan aged 75 or older. A million more will be on the roads by 2021. Unnerved, the police are trying to coax many out of their cars. Over 75s are twice as likely to cause a fatal accident as younger drivers, says the National Police Agency. Yet the resilient elderly spirit is commonplace in Japan. In January, an 85-year-old man steered his vehicle into oncoming traffic on a country road, hitting a car and mowing down two schoolgirls. 
Police believe he mistook the accelerator for the brake. The man's family said he had long resisted their pleas to hand over his keys. It seems nagging families might be more conducive to change than police action. More than 250,000 over 75s surrendered their licences last year. Many were pushed down to the local police station by relatives. With the best of intentions, I'm sure. This week's Money Talks explored law and order and a touch of business, of course, in America. A recent school shooting seems to have shifted public opinion on gun laws and activists are suggesting a boycott of several high-profile companies because they carry NRA TV. Host Helen Joyce spoke to our finance correspondent, Krista Koskolo, on the line from New York about what the business impact of the attempted boycott might be. It really depends on how the balance plays out. So the NRA has 5 million members. You know, the U.S. has a population of 300 million, but the U.S. is a very polarized country and U.S. political polarization has been has been getting worse and worse. And now, you know, companies are being dragged into the fray. And this this boycott of the NRA from the corporate side shows that for some of these of America's largest corporations, they reckon that on balance, they would take a bigger reputational hit from continuing to offer these discounts than from suffering the ire of some conservative activists. But of course, you know, companies have come out on both sides of this and have gotten, you know, equal or, or amounts of opprobrium. And in the week ahead, our show on all things foreign affairs, we explored some public policy over the border in Canada, where a sluggishness in the economy has taken root. Old sources of growth are running dry, so the government is looking for new ones, as our Canada correspondent Madeleine Drowen reported. The finance minister and Mr Trudeau have decided that including more women in the workforce, making it easier for them to get jobs and consequently uh, making men uh, pick up more of the slack at home is a way of driving economic growth. To bring this week's coverage to a close, we bring you a grammatical requiem of sorts from our language columnist Johnson. Who for, you may ask, when in fact it's for whom? Last week, The Economist considered the new South African president's intray, advertising our advice on the cover with the words, Who Cyril Ramaphosa should fire? Some readers might have wondered whether someone should fire our proofreaders. Shouldn't that be whom Cyril Ramaphosa should fire? It wasn't a cock-up. On paper, the grammar is clear. It should be whom. Who is used for subjects, whom for objects including direct objects, such as that of the verb to fire. He fires him, not he fires he. Thus, he fires whom. The issue is not as simple as that. Whom is one of the few remaining vestiges of case in English. At the time of Beowulf, the great monster-slaying Anglo-Saxon epic, English nouns, pronouns and adjectives, plus words like the, all had an ending-showing case. Four different cases in Old English tell you whether a word is a subject, direct object, indirect object or possessor. But we've come a long way, about a thousand years in fact since Beowulf's time, and as the Saxon warrior did, that system almost entirely has died. How can you dispense with case without throwing out intelligibility? It's important to know what word in a sentence is the subject, which the direct object, and so on. That's true, explained Johnson, but nearly every language on earth has got round this problem. The loss of case in modern English means that word order must be relatively fixed, usually subject, verb and object, in that sequence. 
Steve loves Sally means that Steve is the lover, Sally the loved. This could be reversed in Old English with the meaning unchanged because the case endings would show who loved whom. After a preposition, Johnson conceded, whom still has its place. But in cases like our cover flash, whom Cyril Ramaphosa should fire, felt so unacceptably stilted that our editors decided against it. The case, as it were, is getting stronger against whom, except in the most formal language, think courtrooms and prayers, this little word may not survive. For whom the bell tolls. As sadly it does for this week's tasting menu. Any thoughts on this week's show or any of our content, do send them through to us by email at radioeconomist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio or leave us a rating, please do, on Apple Podcasts. In London, this is The Economist. Economist.